It's April 11th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's newsworthy headlines in the world of acquisition. The first one we got here is DoD seeking $100 million for the Valley of Death Bridge Fund. And I guess a little background here is that for fiscal year 2022, Congress gave $100 million in procurement money in a mission management pilot program. I think they're in the process of figuring out what that is and how that stood up. But I guess that's a little bit more mature for kind of combatant commander needs and procurement, whereas Heidi Shu is now asking for, and it's not clear whether that was also in the FY23, by the way, maybe you know, but then she's asking for here, kind of like something more between Cyber Phase 2 and Cyber Phase 3 or the Small Business Innovation Research. So earlier than procurement, right? Like still trying to prove out um, technology, get it to a little bit higher level. So that's what she's asking for, it looks like here in another $100 million. All these Valley of Death funds, right, for $100 million. Uh, what you got here? I know, Eric. You know, it's almost like nobody read our article. You know, <laughs> right. uh, I saw it came out in NPS, and some people were, like, asking me about it. And I was like, oh, that's actually old, but, it, you know, it's, it's like relevant. incredibly <laughs> relevant, even more relevant than when we wrote it. <laughs> um, so I think there was some confusion with this article, actually. Uh the, the hundred million, um, there's there is a hundred million for mission management. That is RDT and E actually, and that's part of the SCOs, uh, SCOs work. So I looked in the budget, and that was that was RDT and E for sure. Um, then there was in twenty two, right? There was the Michael McKay, uh, you know, Representative Calvert hundred million dollar agile procurement pilot fund, and. Uh, actually, so they got the names mixed up, mission management versus agile procurement. I think so. And then I think what Heidi Shu is actually asking for was a continuation of that procurement funding. If you read more into it, it does say continue supporting, um, but it but it had some something about more like procurement money, not more RDT&E money, which they already yeah, have with Raider. Me, right? Well, they already have Raider and stuff, though, so it doesn't really make sense like have. And Raider was completely left out of this, which was like kind of part of this, right? Because they got two hundred million in twenty two, and I remember a while ago Sh- Sh- Heidi Shu was saying there it's closer to a billion dollars for twenty three, right? I'd be interested to see where that lands. Yeah, I mean they, they may get it. I think there's still a lot of support on the hill for Raider. I think some of the money's kind of being diverted for some of the Ukrainian stuff and whatnot. So it's might be a weird thing this year, but um, yeah, I think there's still, I think the Hill still, still think that's a good idea. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure this one, cause I looked at the 23 request and there was something in there called like a pit. It was like agile procurement, some, something um, kind of thing. So I think it's more a continuation of the Michael McKay sort of representative Calvert fund. Um, but anyway, I, I did, I mentioned this to actually some of uh, my leadership. I was like, I'm going to work on a primer to come up to keep track of all the different funds because it's starting to get out of hand and we probably need to uh, help help people with it a little bit. So, Yeah, that, that would be a good idea. Um, it's one of those things people will just get back to. Oh, it's a slush fund. Or these think we didn't get anything out of these. These are stupid. Let's just close them down. Um, but it's interesting that the DOD is actually wanting it, right? Because with the Rapid Innovation Fund, Apparently, the DOD never requested it, and it was always like a congressional ad or something like that. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense to me because it's like, well, you have all these unfunded priorities, right? What do you need an innovation fund for when you're telling me I know rank order A, B, C, D, E what I'm going to put the next dollar to? 
so then what what is this other pot of money right like why were those going to non-priorities right i I do think the 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 ending of the riff was a little bit more of a leadership um sort of sort of thing when r&e was you know had a different uh leader there so I think I was a little bit driven by that. Heidi Shu clearly has like a lot more engagement, and I think I think there's also a feeling of empowerment because uh, the DevSecDef is like you know actually has like an innovation steering group, and R and E is a is a part of that, and so they have they have the ability to at least get the DevSecDef involved in more of this discussion. But like yeah, like you said, you still you still need the other end of it. You're not going to solve this with with just these little these small pots of money. You're going to ultimately have have to have a program that's ready to uh, take it to the next level. Well, will you need a program or as, <laughs> uh, Mike Brown, right? <laughs> I, I love this article, by the way, which oh, is Pentagon's so glaring weakness, bureaucracy hampering commercial tech adoption and breaking defense. But Mike Brown here from Defense Innovation Unit was saying, you know, paired with a stable budget, you know, we can get to a capability of record, not a program of record, where the need is for capability that is ongoing and that you can kind of assess vendors and continually refresh on commercial cycle times. And let's look at here. In terms of budget reform, Brown said that uh, Congress should allow for more flexibility in the appropriations process beyond programs to budget for capabilities, including small drones and satellite imagery, which we knew we need, we will need for decades to come. Right, And then the requirements process for commercial technologies he's saying should also be eliminated and replaced with the rapid validation of needs. So interesting stuff here. I, I mean, I'm completely on board with capability of record. What does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, I think it just goes, it goes to the kind of portfolio discussions, right. That we've had is this idea of a, uh, um, and I think your blog post actually this morning was a, was a good one on this too. It's like, you know, instead of this idea that we're, we're setting up this, uh, you know, huge infrastructure of a program that has these life cycle, you know, projections. And it's, you know, it's like this one, one thing will provide all the capability you need for this area. There's nothing else that can do it because we're putting all of our eggs in this one basket. So instead of that, you know, thinking about, thinking about like a drone is just one, one, one capability in a, a bundle of capabilities. And you could have, you know, multiple germs that have some of the same capabilities that can be used in different ways. And, you know, so just changing this whole paradigm and, you know, getting away, I think it also goes to the re- reporting, hyper-focus on reporting and documentation and all that stuff that we get really fixated on um, and, and sort of shaking that up and saying, you know, it's like, you know, I, I think like if you had this kind of approach, you could have, uh, if, if a drone wasn't working out or there was a better one, it's like end that, right? Instead of like, if it was a program, you wouldn't really be able to end it, right? There'd be this whole constituency, but it's like, it doesn't work. Okay, end it, buy some different ones, you know, try something new. And, you know, satellite imagery, if a new commercial company comes online and their imagery is better, buy that one. Don't buy this one, you know? So, yeah, it's just a, a different world, I think, and we just need to get used to living in it. What do you think about, you know, budgeting to a capability like small drones and satellite imagery? Because he said, you know, we need organizational homes for these commercial technologies, you know, in one respect, you could say, well, let's just reorg, create new organizations that are from the core, you know, doing these new things. Um, but another way you could go about it is just say, well, shouldn't commercial technologies pervade more of the system? And so shouldn't the regular program executive offices, you know, be these, you know, organizational homes to a degree? 
Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I've I've pushed back on that idea. We've had different conversations about that. And it's like, you know, treating treating commercial capabilities as some special thing is, is I think, yeah, like you said, the, the wrong way to go. It's like, you know, it's more about actually, if you want to get cost effectiveness, you can't treat it separate because some of these things need to replace, you know, capabilities that we have in the system now that are either old or, you know, too expensive, or at least to complement them, right? Like manned unmanned teaming, maybe you do still have F-35s, but you do have a lot more cost-effective drones that could do, you know, some of that mission set. So I think you have to think about them together. I don't think you can create, I know like SSC right now, the Space um, um, space Systems Command, they have a commercial office and it is separate uh, right now from the other capability POs uh, portfolios. And so I think that at some point that will have to change and that will just get dispersed into the different POs. I don't know what their, I don't know what their plan is for that, but at some point I think that like that just needs to happen. Cause yeah. I agree. So let's move on. DOD seeks huge jump in budget for hypersonic test facilities. And again, this one's kind of highlighting Heidi Shu talking about a rapid expansion here of Arnold engineering development complex in Tennessee, which of course has the the hypersonic wind tunnels for for the military. I think it's like the only one in the DOD that's yeah. still, you know, and I think NASA has one as well. But uh, so yeah, there was that 800 million going to laboratory and test infrastructure, and not really clear how much is going to Arnold and versus other places, I suppose. But this part was interesting. Quote: Industry would like to have their own test infrastructure for them to do their own testing, and what I'm investing in is for the government to do the testing. And there's also funding for universities to do research and testing. So I know that I think it was with Purdue um, and potentially even uh, Texas A&M, there was some partnerships on the hypersonic front. But it looks like, yeah, she said industry would like to have it, but I'm doing this. (laughs) So maybe they're not going to have a dedicated um, one for industry where they can play. Maybe it's like a government owned, government operated thing on behalf. I don't know. Like what thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, for a lot of things, we've had like government facilities. So whenever like, you, you know, environmental uh, testing for some system, you know, that has to be, you know, has to operate in this range of hot and cold temperatures, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, what they do, like shake and bake it, right? They'll like, you know, stick it in there and, and do all these things and make sure that, you know, at the end of those the cycles that they run, you know, does it still turn on? Does it still function? I mean, almost all in all cases that I've ever seen, that's always government facilities. So I, I was a little confused about industry wanting their own. I mean, for one, they go invest in their own if they want to, but I, I really can't see too many too many contractors spending the billions and billions to have their own hypersonic tunnel um, when they can use a government one. So I mean, maybe, maybe at some point that will change. I think I think Northrop. Northrop was doing something. Didn't we talk about that at some point? They they had, they were investing in in, a, in like a new next gen facility. And I don't know if like they had any wind tunnels as part of that. But yeah, maybe at some point you know they'll see that this hypersonic market, especially if the procurement contracts come like they're you know sort of anticipating. Maybe at some point you know industry will do their own. But I don't know what she meant about like not allowing industry. It almost sounded like they said no or. I don't know if it was like, you know, some of the big primes came and said, we want the government to fund, you know, our company or allow us to do this as IRAD or something. I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of curious what she meant by that, but, but yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense. A lot of these, I mean, if you want there to be a lot of competition in these types of spaces, you know, there needs to be these shared services to a degree because not every company that wants to participate can go out and like, yeah. you know, buy its own wind tunnel, right? So there's going to have to be shared services. Is it a company that takes that on or is there like, you know, is that the government space right there to kind of, you know, provide those enterprise tools? Yeah, I think the problem right now, this was, there was, yeah, there's been papers done on this for over 10 years now, but is at some point you, you do want to have more than just one facility. If there's, you know, an issue there, all of a sudden we have like a huge setback in hypersonics and we can't, you know, can't do it. Or you can't give all the, all the vendors that want to get access timely access. So you have to schedule it like months in advance, you know? So I do think, you know, there should be some emphasis on maybe Arnold is not the only place we should have one. Maybe we should have one in California or somewhere else. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Well, let's move on to U.S. Space Command releases commercial integration strategy, kind of circle back. I didn't really get, I didn't understand very much of what was going on in this. For example, the overview outlines three ways or lines of effort space Spacecom will pursue accelerating acquisition and technology refresh timelines, exploring integration as a service, and leveraging industry expertise to strengthen partnerships. So you, you said there was some kind of standalone commercial office that they're standing up there. What's what's could you unpack what is this integration strategy? Yeah, I mean I'll try. Um yeah, because I also I did have some some follow-up questions on this one. Um yeah, so they've always had, or for a long time, they've had a commercial, or I'm sorry, a commercial communication office. So, you know, we, we've been renting SATCOM on, uh, you know, commercial SATCOM for a long time to support uh, our data pipelines. But, uh, you know, the new office was, was changed to be uh, broader than that, right? So space domain awareness, uh, deep sensing and things like that. So, so to, ex- to expand just uh, from the, the commercial um, comms. And so that office was, you know, looking at different ways and they were supposed to kind of do RFIs and get ideas on how the commercial sector could help Spacecom or, uh, you know, SSC in their acquisition strategies. So I think this might be something that came out of some of those discussions of accelerating acquisition technology refresh timelines. Um, The only thing I can think there is that the commercial sector is investing in in many cases um, in certain technologies maybe a, a sensor or uh, a commercial bus or, um, you know, some, some, something that could be leveraged by the, uh, by the military or by some defense vendor that would help you accelerate some of that so you didn't have to do it. It, it is a little bit confusing because most of the big primes already can have, has some of that. Um, and so I think this probably does need to be unpacked a little bit more. I don't understand it completely. Um, integration as a service, I think that one makes more sense because we can host payloads and, uh, you know, and, and actually, you know, put a sensor up on a commercial bird. And so you, you would, you would basically hand that sensor off to a vendor and they would, they could integrate it and that could all be done as a service. And basically there's, I don't know, some kind of uh, service rent, you know, rental fee kind of thing for, for using, you know, using the energy from, uh, you know, from the power on the satellite and, you know, basically, uh, using that space. So, so yeah, I, something like that kind of makes sense. And then do I think they have an anti anti sat <laughs> shoot down uh, fee in there. <laughs> yeah, well, honey, China think... takes this out, then you pay me X percent. <laughs> actually, it's funny you say that because we were at, I was at a space conference where like uh, vendors actually said they asked uh, General Raymond that 
Like, hey, if I get shot down, will you buy me a new satellite? Um, that's definitely something they're going to have to work out. There's probably like some insurance thing or something they're going to have to work there. I but guess if yeah. satellites are getting shot down, like the government's just going to like, you know, when like if, it felt like with COVID, trillion is the new billion. Like, I guess if something like that happens, like, you know, producing satellites, like that, getting money to the contractors to produce satellites is not going to be the problem. Yeah. And I guess the good thing is that all of these commercial companies, they're not, they're not sending up expensive satellites, right? They're finding the most economical way of, of achieving the minimum capability that they need to. And, um, the Dell computers of satellites. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so maybe the, maybe the cost won't be that high, but yeah, I think that was General Dickinson's point and it's really good to see, you know, I think it's one thing when the acquisition community kind of says these things uh, and, you know, space, space uh, acquisition has always been dabbling in the commercial sector, but this I think is to hear the Spacecom commander actually say, we're going to do this and command and control, you know, big data management, space control, you know, SATCOM, like, you know, and then even talking about expanding it to uh, remote sensing and quantum computing and other things. So, yeah, it's really good to see, uh, really good to see that coming from the operational side. All right, moving to the Army, U.S. Army Ready's request for prototype designs for optionally manned fighting vehicles. And so they have been in the initial design. The next is going to be a detailed design phase over 23-24. Awards for up to three contractors are expected in 23. The prototyping will begin in FY25. And I guess they'll select um, in 27 to do an LRIP kind of thing for full rate production to begin in 30. So that's that's a long time from now, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I was a little surprised about that. Um I actually looked it up on the like on the commercial side, like a like a car company. What is it? You know, what's the the time frame usually? And like the, the one, the couple articles that I that I skimmed, it basically said like sometimes it can be done really fast. Um, you know, like less than a year. Um, F one, you know, some of the some of the uh, high end race, you know, race uh, race cars can can do a you know do a concept to uh, design to to production and you know in really short period of time but they said on average it does take three to five years to go from like a concept to a consumer ready production um so yeah i guess that's in the ballpark i definitely i definitely was kind of hoping that you know given this was like a phased approach and also that this can be a modular system that maybe they would feel more of like an mvp type uh type system and then you know build that out over time but it sounds like uh Sounds like it might, might not be that way. So yeah, production at thirty, yeah, a little further out than it would have thought. But I, I think my problem is is just like when you like start these things from scratch and then you just like go with like these clean sheet designs. Where had been the continuing development and activity that should have like already been happening, right? And then you're just kind of like going that next mile as opposed to just starting you know, scratch from a clean sheet. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, combat vehicles, I mean, a lot of the companies we're talking about, this is like their specialty. So it wasn't really a clean sheet design. I mean, you, you have the different chassis. I mean, I feel like, I feel like, you know, right, once you, once, once, once you have some sense of like the, you know, how much is this thing going to weigh? And, you know, you have like some notional design, you can start to, you can start to design out the chassis and you know, you know, you've done this a million times, you know, the kind of the factors that you need to consider. So yeah, it is surprising to me for a combat vehicle that they couldn't get that piece of it done. I get the integration is always more complicated and, you know, getting the electronics where, you know, 
oh, it's shaking too much and electronics not working. Like figuring all that stuff out is kind of complicated and you can't always predict all those nuances. But um, if you're using digital engineering and you're modeling stuff, ah, you think they could get a little bit faster with it. But yeah, it does uh, It does sort of seem like they did go more clean sheet and maybe that is part of the part of the challenge here. Maybe if it's uh, you want a digital twin kind of out of it or something like that in advance, right? It's just like perfection in design. Because again, it's they've been at it for probably a couple of years. I mean, they had the the phase one that failed, but um, starting to build something in FY twenty five, right? That means there's a lot of of designing going on in advance of bending metal. But they all, but they already have some prototype stuff. I'm sure they're working on, right? Yeah, and I would actually be curious to to know the long lead. So you know, one of the things is the engine. I don't know how much this thing is going to weigh, but and I don't know if it will require, you know, like a new engine, you know, basically because of because of the requirements. But I mean, M1 tank actually has like an aircraft engine in it, you know. So, um, so if it's a heavy vehicle, um, maybe the engine is a long lead, and it's not these other pieces. So, yeah, I, I guess we won't know it unless we could see some of the details of, you know, what, what's holding this back. But but it feels like what's the requirement, right? Like. If it's a science project still, then we want, we aren't ready for it. And that should be like this timeline is fine. But then, you know, I guess the JLTV is like, like that's, that's like not what is the gap filler, right? So I guess there is no requirement, right, for um, this kind of man fighting vehicle for the next decade, essentially. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I think there is. Uh, I think they would like to get rid of the Bradleys. Um yeah, one other thing, I could, if I could poke at, is this idea of doing a full and open competition, which which is is destined to be a complicated endeavor, likely to be protested. Right? These these all these companies really want this business. Um, doing a full and open for a design w- when you're when you have these mature companies who have done this, I think is 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 a bad acquisition strategy. I, I would have I would have taken that to actually like let them do the prototype. Because you're going to spend so much time arguing over the design, right? It's going to be, it's all paper. They're going to spend a ton of time in source selection, trying to evaluate these detailed designs yeah. and saying, that's, oh, that's slightly better. That's a strength. That's a weakness. And no one's working in that time. No, yeah. <laughs> this is what Dr. Roper always says, like, bend metal and then let's talk. You know, it's like, they're going to be doing paper stuff here until practically uh, 24. So, yeah, they're going to lo- probably lose a couple of years and... Hopefully they get it right, but you know if you don't get it right, then you kind of like you know you have to go back go back to the beginning. So I'd rather see I would have rather seen them done the full and open competition, like you know let them produce a prototype, go out take it to the range, do the obstacles, do a couple targeting things, and and then like whoever masters that, it's like okay we're gonna you know take two of you forward and and do a, a longer L rip, and then you know uh, you know like we've talked about, I would loved it, what I would have loved to see with this too. I think they're gonna go to a single vendor. It sounds like. But I would have loved to to like take two two vendors through LREP and then, you know, whoever does the best uh, when you go into full rate, give like 70 percent, you know, of the production to the one vendor and 30 percent to the other. And then every few years, you know, do a new competition and and see if, uh, you know, who's made who's made improvements and just keep that pressure on. Right. This is something the army's going to buy for, for, you know, probably the next 20 years. So so why not have some redundancy? But yeah doesn't sound like that's going to go that way yeah no that's it's an interesting point there <laughs> well we'll see on on the legacy of uh, optionally man fighting vehicle what 
what actually happens with it. But moving on to shipbuilding, electrification sparks new shipbuilding breaking defense. The Tagos 25, I believe that's how you say it, ocean surveillance ship for anti-submarine warfare. Um, this one in December 2021, the Navy issued a final RFI, uh, which would include electric propulsion uh, for more silent operations and greater speed. Uh, and of course, they're going to have that towed array sensor system for sub hunting. And then the article kind of goes on and talks about the possible electrification of the DDGX, the the next destroyer. Um, the primary driver of the electric of the electric weapons here. So the primary need for this, essentially, if, if you're going to have like an electric propulsion system, is that if you're Systems are going to be very heavy on the electric side in terms of like directed energy, you know, spy six radars or whatever it is like that. Uh, you're going to need a whole ton of electric power. So maybe it's a good idea to build some of these ships around that instead of kind of the classic turbine. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, riding on commercial technology here, right, on electrification. I wasn't really aware, by the way, that, you know, electric propulsion was like a big requirement for the lcs um or no the the ddg 1000 yeah and that was one of like the 12 or 13 critical technologies that didn't really pan out right yeah that was interesting they kind of made the point that the technology wasn't quite quite there for the ddg 1000 but like the navy the navy didn't give up on it um and and now now they have a, I, didn't, I didn't also didn't realize there was an electric drive on the Columbia class submarine. I mean, it makes a lot of sense from a acoustic perspective, but yeah. um, the fact that the fact that they have demonstrated that does make it uh, has to make it a lot easier for the for the Navy to accept this for the DDG X. So um, I wonder how different they are than like I guess this was built by Leonardo DRS. That's kind of like leading some of this um, you know battery technology for the Navy. But then you know does that how different it is are those requirements they must be much bigger than right than like just like a tesla battery but um could leonardo go into the commercial world or are they kind of like protected and it's just different you know well the one difference um is that so the the one requirement because the shipyards and, and oh, yeah, the, 40 the, years <laughs> well yeah i was going to bring that up but also that you know this idea of having a single what they're calling an SSV, a single system vendor. Um, when they first talked about like this electric, electric propulsion package, I was kind of thinking, you know, yeah, you got, you know, it's like sort of the back end, and you know, you have the pieces there, and it connects into the larger system. But, but no, like check this out. This is like it's much more invasive, shall we say, than, than I would than I would have thought. Uh, the single uh, system vendor will be responsible for specifying and integrating the whole thing from the gas turbine generator and diesel generator sets through to the electrical parts, power distribution system, drives and motors, all the peripherals as well as the, as well as the control system makes it all work together. Even the mechanical shafts, propellers, and shaft bearings are included in the package. The SSV is directly responsible to the shipyard to make sure the entire propulsion system is uh, specified correctly and integrated. I mean, that's like, that is no joke. I mean, right, that is <laughs> sounds like, complicated. Sounds complicated, and it sounds like they are, like, you know, building half of the ship, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, definitely definitely an interesting uh, approach. It sounds like that's a Who's lot the prime here, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like you're almost, like, inverting things, like, right? When you're, like, in a hypersonic world, maybe, like, the inlet is more important than <laughs> the engine or something. Or it's like you can't really tell where those start and end. Maybe, like, software right. and batteries are, like, the new primes. 
Yeah, it definitely sounds like they're going to have to work <laughs> work much more closely together than, you know, maybe they had in the past where they just like, okay, put the engine there, you know, we'll install that, you know, and stuff like that. It's going to have to be a lot much more of an integrated approach. Uh, but I, I was, just on the last piece of that, I was blown away by the fact that they said the uh, components are required to have a 40-year service life. Yeah. <laughs> and that most of them are required to have that life with essentially zero maintenance. Like, holy gal, like that is, that's impressive. That's an exacting ass. That's kind of gets back to that redundancy thing, right? It's like, how do you build in re resilience? They're just like building the one thing that will never, ever fail or by like building in redundancy with cheaper things and just having like redundant backups to that. Or, or you, I guess you could think about it too, like the difference between like a solid state um, yeah, component or something. That. You know, it's like if you don't have as many moving, uh, moving Parts. components and stuff. You, yeah, it's like you, you just don't have the failures. So maybe, maybe there's some redundancy, but you know, maybe not nearly as much. But yeah, definitely sounds like uh, this is the way to wave the future. Um, it's like it's like like uh, fundamentally quieter, uh, has more power, and um, it seems like it's extremely reliable. So yeah, the good characteristics. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like I'd like my car to go for forty years without any <laughs> maintenance, right? I know. Well, we got some good news on the next one, right? U.S. hypersonic missile successful in-flight tests, DARPA says, and that's of course the hypersonic air-breathing weapons concept, the Hawk, which is I guess uh, primed by Lockheed, and DARPA here is is the funder. So, um, yeah, they, it went what Mach, faster than Mach five for an extended period of time. Um, at altitudes greater than 65,000 feet and for more than 300 nautical miles, which I think was just like 100 seconds or something. It beat beat the previous record um, from the Wave Rider, I believe, uh, 10 years ago or so. So, yeah, I guess uh, after, you know, some aero failures, this, there, there's a little bit of uh, good news on, on the back of this one. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the question I still, I still have on this is like the... Um... This one, this one is an air breather. So even though it's up to sixty five thousand, it's still, it's still mainly an oxygen, you know, consuming yep. sort of thing. So you know, the hypersonic boost glide, you know, uh, is a different is a different model. So it's sort of like where, where is the value proposition? Like I'm still a little bit confused about like should you know because because arrow is different, right? Arrow is a is a, is a boost glide. So is that is that fundamentally more uh, useful in certain operational scenarios than this one, which maybe is easier to detect because one, a scramjet has to be super hot. Um, so, you know, you probably can detect it to some extent, whether you can react to it. I don't know if, uh, you know, that's still the challenge, but, um, you know, whereas a, a boost glide is, doesn't have a propulsion system. It's using, right. It's, it's coming in using the atmosphere. So, I don't know. I'm so confused about this because, you know, that it, I don't think it's a comparison, a good comparison with, with, with the Hawk and the Arrow. And I'm just not sure what the trade-offs are. Yeah, but I, I guess the point is to get a, to get some uh, some good press coverage, right? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This, yeah. Yeah, but no, that that is a very good question. And, you know, how maneuverable are each of them too, right? So... If they do have these trade-offs, is is the is the hawk still maneuverable? You know, like I guess when it gets to be able to go more than three hundred nautical miles, when it, when it can fly uh, to its mission requirement, you know, how maneuverable will it be? Because the speed and the maneuverability will be 
kind of key there, I suppose, to his survivability. You you would think the scramjets would be highly maneuverable, given yeah. that they have the they have an ongoing propulsion system. They did do they do talk about carrying bulky oxygen tanks and things like that. So I don't know. Maybe they have maybe they have a flight envelope where they can only maneuver in a certain you know uh, in a certain way without sort of breaking apart the system. Um, but I mean the, the the boost glides, from what I understand, you know, can almost like sort of like just come down anywhere, and you like you really can't predict. It does sound like, given the fact that these operate within the atmosphere, that you would be able to track them a little better, maybe. But I don't know. Yeah, that's still an open question for me. All right, next one we got is Textron drone deploys on U.S. Navy destroyer as contractor operated ISR node. And so this is, the, I actually haven't heard of this one, the Aerosonde yeah. or Aerosonde uh, UAV system from uh, Textron. Uh, it's been on a Navy expedi- expeditionary sea base. Uh, it's got ISR payloads for wide area search uh, for maritime operations. And Textron employees are actually deployed on this destroyer to operate the UAV. Um, and they also own it. So I think they're pretty much running the entire kind of like end-to-end logistics for this thing, right? Um, so it's pretty interesting. And then and then they also go towards this, you know, the Navy is essentially paying for the data the UAV obtains. Uh, so it, it could almost go to this like as-a-service model to a degree. Um, not really sure exactly how it's getting worked out. But yeah, so that's pretty interesting moving to a Cocoa model. You've been hearing a lot of about these Cocoa models um, recently, so... But I, mean, I guess the you know government still has their fifty fifty requirement, but <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is a, as a service. I, I mean, I think if you have a cocoa, it's pretty much as a service because the the navy's not buying it. It, it sounds like the only time yeah. they pay for it is when it goes up and collects collects some data. So um, yeah, but do they? I don't know if they meter price it or if they just kind of have like a performance, you know, like a performance based logistics type of thing, where it's like the number of uptime, the number of mm. hours, and I just pay you for that bulk thing in a contract, which probably is the way they do it. And then it almost kind of works out the same way, maybe. Well, I guess, yeah, I'd like to see the contract. I mean, one way you could do it is to say, you know, is to have the vendor put a minimum, like at a minimum, you have to buy this much data for us to deploy the thing because we need to make sure, right, that we have like some return. Um, it would well, be- the, the government needs to be able to specify the requirement and, you know, price it, right? So... I'm sure that's what they have to do, right? But but you, they're also you have to predict what how how much you're gonna have. Yeah, you can you have to predict, but if you're if you're really using it as a service, there should be a range, and I just mean like there should have to be a minimum range of yeah, you know, to make this worthwhile and deploy the people out there, we need to get so we need to make sure we have like a minimum return on investment. If you guys use it a lot more and we get more return on investment, then great. Um, yeah, I did think it was interesting that they, you know, they're definitely thinking outside the box and I like how this, this company is, is even, you know, sort of acknowledging that they're a little bit of a trendsetter, right? Like showing how you can have these kind of deployable mission sets. And they're, they're talking about like, you know, even potentially being able to transfer it from one ship to another, like, you know, maybe one ship is coming back, uh, you know, and going into dock for some maintenance, uh, you don't necessarily have to do some like uninstall and you know restall thing. You could just like move that move that capability over to the other the other ship that's actually going out into combat or going out into the deployment. Um, you know, and it'd, be, and it'd be like a fairly easy thing to do. So, yeah, kind of kind of interesting different concepts of employment that you know really we haven't had the option for in the past. 
And, you know, the fact that you could actually have, you know, this is something the Army's done for a long time where, you know, these small drones allowed them to kind of see, uh, you know, see in an area that they wouldn't typically have access to before they send troops there. And now it's this sort of sounds like the Navy is doing the same thing as some of these ships where you didn't didn't have a helicopter capability. Now you essentially do have, you know, the ability to send out a scout and to, to see to see something before you actually, uh, you know, move into the area. So, yeah, this is a, I think this is really interesting. It's, uh, yeah, something I hadn't heard of either, but the fact that, uh, the fact that they're doing it, they're already thinking about new payloads and new missions is, is really promising. I wonder what the, uh, endurance is of this. I think they said an hour. I think they said an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not a lot, but yeah, enough, right? Sometimes just enough. Well, it's better than nothing, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, all right, next one we got is operating at scale, manufacturing at Enduro for medium uh, blog posts. So across, they got now six locations there uh, across Southern Cal, Massachusetts, and Georgia, 150,000 square feet. And they, they've kind of really, I guess they're building out their manufacturing team. They started with Sentry Towers and Ghost Drones. Now they have the Interceptor Drone Anvil, Wisp Passive Sensors, Altius Air Launched Effects, so they they've been buying up a lot of stuff too, right? Um, and and they're going to be turning them out. So th- this year they'll build over one thousand anvil interceptors, and double the size of their team. And this part I really liked. Uh, quote: An engineer can test a new part on Monday, update their CAD model that evening, have us build the part overnight, and be back in the field testing it as early as Tuesday morning. So yeah, that's kind of that factory of the future that and you know, development paradigm that seems to make sense. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. We've talked about how, you know, I think too many of the factories that we have today that, that are, especially for our legacy systems, I mean, they're like, you know, custom built with, you know, practically billions of dollars. I mean, it really is billions of dollars for, you know, for like the F-35 or any sort of exotic aircraft, <laughs> billions of dollars in tooling. It's constantly updated. It's it's a huge yeah. monstrosity. That SDD um, contract, I think, had eight billion dollar tooling clin or something like that. Oh yeah, for that thirty five. It, it's insane. Which is just the development contract tooling clin. <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah. I mean, it was it was the it was one of the things that always whenever I saw the negotiation details, I was just like blown away. So yeah, the fact that you know you're investing in that tooling, but it's only for one platform, is like you know it's kind of crazy, and we just can't we can't do that in the future. So it. I think there's so much to learn here. I'd love to like, I'd love to spend like a week just understanding, you know, more of how they do this. Uh, they did lay out some principles, which I think are, you know, I think are really key. One is, you know, moving as quickly as possible from prototype to production. So they, you know, they keep that R and D pipeline of products. Like they don't, um, you know, they don't expect to only produce samples, right? Like they're, they, they, the way they put it is that um, they optimize their manufacturing process for flexibility uh, they do it in two areas of this incredible range of Swiss Army knife tools we keep on hand and the in-depth of talent among our manufacturing engineers. So it's just part of like that, that mindset of like, yeah, you know, we're, we might produce something different tomorrow. Data defines the factory. They have different data software tools to help the manufacturing process. So they get feedback from, uh, from internal, uh, internal engineers and external engineers and they're constantly doing testing. And then culture as a differentiator. So they think about a parts manufacturability from day one. So I think that's a key one is even even in DOD where we, you know, do years and years of planning, you know, manufacturability is like, you don't have the information at the start. 
So it invariably gets pushed way down the line. And then you find out like, oh, this thing is really inefficient to produce. Uh, wish we wish we could have dealt with this earlier, but very few DoD systems do that. But Android definitely makes that a part of the culture. And then the last one is just using best practices from industry. So, you know, they kind of make the point they don't reinvent the wheel, but they they look at the automotive, medical device, consumer electronic, uh, you know, in, uh, practices and and apply them. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons here for for our traditional uh, manufacturers. Well, maybe the traditional manufacturers are trying to pick up some of the the new uh, business methods here. Lockheed Martin pushing for USB-like universal plug-in for satellites. And so this looks to be a new interface and docking system for upgrading payloads uh, for a satellite's mission on orbit. And so they're looking to influence industry-wired standardization approaches. And he compared it to a USB port on modern computers, allowing multiple types of devices and applications to be connected and uploaded. So, yeah, it, it just kind of feels like, I don't know. I don't know if the new space companies would necessarily accept a, a Lockheed Martin-influenced kind of standardization approach. But, you know, it, it feels like, you know, they've heard the call from DOD, you know, modular open systems. Okay, so <laughs> they're trying to go at it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that there's probably some skepticism. And I don't even view this as a MOSA thing, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, to me, it's like, it's almost, uh, I mean, USB is, is a good way of thinking about it. There's a huge future in space for doing on-orbit servicing, you know, whether that's refueling or fixing uh, some component. Uh, it's just it's just the future. There's the commercial sector is all in on it. So so it does make sense that we need some standards for military satellites. Uh, I'd be curious to get feedback from the larger satellite community on if this Aspen is the is the right one to do. Um, you know, if there's downsides, I don't know if Lockheed's controlling pieces of it how they update it like that's one of the things with the standard if it's like if you update it right you have to sort of you know make sure that you're backwards compatible and things like that so um so yeah there's i think there's a little bit more to unpack there but i do like the fact that they are uh, you know talking about having a standard later on in that article they talk about having like standard combat bus you know so um, you know, so they are, I think they are looking, you know, at doing things more like the commercial sector. So it's good to see, good to see they're doing that and, and at least taking a stab at this, uh, you know, this new standard and, you know, maybe it will get accepted and maybe it'll become the new, you know, new on orbit servicing, uh, approach. I guess we'll see. So sticking with space here, ULA expects Amazon deal to drive down Space Force Vulcan launch costs. And so ULA announced this week that it has been selected to fly 38 launches for Amazon's Project Kuiper. I believe that's how you say it. Um, and it's a constellation of 3,000 satellites um, aimed at expanding broadband access to underserved regions. Uh, so those 38 missions are going to be on top of nine Atlas V rockets. Um, already ordered from ULA, and it looks like they're going to kind of push a little bit further here um, down that down that road in that partnership. So I think Blue Origin will have some portion of this launch cost, but maybe they're not at a mature enough state. And so, you know, it's just interesting here, you know, Amazon and Jeff Bezos, I guess he's not even CEO there, right, at Amazon, but they're still, like, looking... I don't know if they looked at SpaceX, but you know maybe they're like, let's let's not help SpaceX here directly. <laughs> we'll go to some of their competitors. Yeah, I kind of felt that too. It's like 
SpaceX probably was the logical one to go to and, and probably would have been cheaper. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's clear that they want to kind of like create some <laughs> Amazon's got a lot of dough, right? <laughs> they, they can pay for it, I guess. <laughs> I guess they see, yeah, I guess they see the, 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 um, the business case. Um, yeah, it looks like Arion Space is also in, in, uh, in the play, yep. which is interesting. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's great. You know, this is the kind of competition we want. Uh, you know, so we'll we'll have Starlink. And you and... allowed to respond, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's. I was surprised there. They said their business is split fifty fifty government commercial. So, well, I mean, the the, the military just has just enormous data uh, data needs. I mean, we just the pipes are just getting bigger, and it's it's impossible to get it to. I mean, to get it through all the the current military satellites, right? I mean, it's just um, they're just not built for that. So, yeah, I guess. Uh, because they they saw what they were able to do with cloud and cloud services and all this other stuff, and now it's just like an expansion of of that sort of how I think of it. Uh, last one we'll do: HII, known as a shipbuilder, pursues pivot to global tech uh, defense tech company. So Huntington Ingalls Industry, they they just don't want to be known by that anymore. They they're just HII, so <laughs> abstracting away away from that Hi. heritage. Hi, yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not the best. Uh, they have a, it's a kind of cool logo, but you know, so I guess the company here renamed and has a new le- website. It's a pretty snazzy website, um, if you want to check it out. And they've moved away from the navy centric color palette, and now they're they're highlighting you know growing work in autonomy and big data management, and apparently uh, their non shipbuilding work is on pace to generate two point six billion in sales this year which is on par with uh, their shipyard in Mississippi. So one aspect of that business, but uh, fairly significant. And it looks like they're kind of seeing the writing on the walls, even though shipbuilding in of itself is, is probably going to be a little bit of a boom business. Uh, but, you know, getting towards more of that, you know, tech company feel. I, I don't know. I can't help, but I can't help but uh, sort of think that, all of this ultimately goes back to the shipbuilding piece. Um, like it doesn't make sense for them to become like some tech company. Um, I, I think like, you know, some of the investments like they bought uh, the hydrid uh, company called hydrid, which is like a underwater autonomous underwater systems company. They bought a simulation developer company, a lion. So, I mean, it's, it, it all, it all starts to feel like, like it is tied back to shipbuilding, but maybe they're, you know, right now there's not a huge business case for that work so they're sort of looking to the future and so they're trying to do what they can uh you know in that space until they can go you know more in on the autonomy autonomy piece so i don't know it'd be interesting to see their long-term long-term plan yeah it would be i'd like to see that portfolio because like at their website it's like sea cyber land air joint all domain and they have like pictures of satellites and like you know ground guys and yeah, I, I feel you though because like right, they got like the Remus three thousand and all that other stuff that they're working on, which obviously makes sense. Okay, you need big data management and autonomy to be, you know, competent and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It looks like they might be going a little bit, a little bit bigger here. Don't don't go GE, all right. I mean, you go, you get too diversified, and then you sort of like modernization of ground vehicles. Really, uh-huh. you're kidding me. Advanced manned and unmanned mobility, C5 ISR, energy systems. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I guess that's all we got for this week. Matt, thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir.
This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.